You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy to you, hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from, what, from, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so today we have a lot of verses to cover, and there's just a lot of content to cover. And so passages like this, typically the best approach, in my opinion, is just to sort of uh, pick a course and go. And so what that means is that we're going to notice some things, and we're going to draw out some things, but along the way we're also going to miss some things. It would be impossible to pack everything into our very, very limited time. And so what What I want us to do today is to kind of like narrow in on the focus of what I really believe is the central theme and focus of this passage, and that is the heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it is uh, referencing the seat of our emotions, of our longings, of our desires, of our loves. It's the driving force of our lives. Something very small that has huge implications for our lives and for the world. Listen to uh, how St. Macarius put it. The heart itself is but a small vessel, yet dragons are there. And there are also lions. There are poisonous beasts and all the treasures of evil. But there too is God, the angels, 
the life and the kingdom, the light and the apostles, the heavenly cities and the treasuries of grace, all things are there. So this morning, uh, we're looking at this account here about the heart, and what we're going to do is we're going to break it into three movements, and the first of which, we're just going to dive right in, the first of which, if you're taking notes, is this. We're going to look first at dividing lines. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Vincent Van Gogh's famous The Starry Night Painting. And there's a little detail, a little known detail, um, that some believe has to do with uh, Vincent van Gogh's religious upbringing. Below the sort of bright, swirling night is a church that sort of holds the dimensions of the painting intention. And surrounding this church are these homes with warm, glowing lights inside. But what's interesting is that uh, of all the structures in this painting, the church is the only building that does not have a light on. And some believe that this had to do, really, well, some believe that this was uh, Vincent van Gogh sort of translating his his experience and his thoughts about the church, really believing, going to show really the light of the church had left. And so the question for us is, why would he, why would Vincent van Gogh feel as if the, the light had left the church? And if you were with us at our annual vision meeting earlier this year, you will remember this part of the story. And some believe that it was a result of rejection that he faced at his time in his context by the Dutch Reformed Church due to his proximity uh, to what they deemed as an unacceptable existence. Earlier in his life, before Vincent van Gogh was a painter, he was actually a preacher, And he had a particular heart for the sick and impoverished men and women of Belgium that lived in the immigrant coal mining communities. And so in order to reach them with the gospel, he fully immersed himself in the lifestyle and the culture. He would spend lots of hours, thousands of feet below ground. He would scrape coal. He would help carry loads for pregnant women. He would help carry injured men and women out of the coal mines Uh, But when the evangelistic organization that had authorized his preaching came to check in on his ministry and to sort of get an update on his life and ministry, they were not very impressed. And they found an impoverished, dingy, dirty Van Gogh coming out of the coal mines. They saw him as a disgrace and, and found him really misrepresenting the ideas of the church. And so to the leadership, they they rejected him. And uh, did not renew his position to continue to preach as an affiliate of the church. And so this is interesting. He found himself at odds, not with the way of Jesus. In fact, to many of the coal miners, he was known as the Christ of the coal mines. He found himself at odds, not so much with the way of Jesus. He found himself at odds with the traditions of man. To Van Gogh, who had found himself outside the dividing lines of the religious majority, to him, the light of the church had left. But here's the good news, and here's the good news that we see here in Mark, is that Jesus is constantly moving toward the margins and crossing over those arbitrary lines to meet those who have found themselves outside. Good news, friend. Jesus meets you outside the traditions of man. Outside the dividing lines, outside the lines that divide. Now, as we look at this passage this morning in Mark, 
It's easy to get lost in some of the language, some of the foreign-sounding language in here. We can get this idea that the actions of the Pharisees were very distinct to the time in the distant past when, uh, when Jesus walked the earth. Issues of cleanliness, issues of, you know, the traditions of the elders, words like Corbin, these sort of things. But it's important to understand that throughout history, boundary markers like what we see here in Mark 7 are actually very common and become very pronounced when people groups or religions face threat of obscurity, where they feel as if their existence is being threatened. For the Pharisees at this time, they were living in a Roman-occupied Israel. And so with this occupation brought all sort of outside influence from the world. Remember, the Greco-Roman world brought with it all sorts of ideas about power and how we relate to people, how we relate to God or the gods, how we relate to one another sexually and through hospitality and all these different ideas. And so to the Pharisees, to the people of God, this outside influence, a lot of what the Greco-Roman world is bringing into Israel was contrary to the ways of the Scripture. So, there was this huge concern amongst the Pharisees that they needed to preserve their identity as God's people and remain distinct. So this is a little bit of what's going on when we we see them beginning to question Jesus and his disciples. Look with me in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your uh, disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. In other words, why are you guys not falling in line? Do you not understand the sign of the times? Do you not understand where we find ourselves today? Do you not understand how important it is that we remain distinct? What ended up happening, what ended up occurring here is that issues of purity, uh, issues of ceremonial cleanliness, rules regarding washing and pots and copper, particular standards for the uh, temple priest, these became clear dividing lines that separated, essentially separated us from them. These became the dividing lines that separated Jew from Gentile. And so over time, these traditions of men, which went above and beyond God's law. They sort of superseded what God had laid out for his people, were elevated to the place of being commanded from God. Those lines began to blur, teaching the commandments of man as the doctrines of God. But those got conflated. What we do here became what God does everywhere. Verse 7, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So while the the world of first century Palestine is unique, don't get me wrong, it's very important for us today to see how relevant this topic is for us today. Because the church often finds certain traditions and certain rules to elevate to the place of doctrine. To this day, we have our own language of clean and unclean. We may use different terms. Acceptable, not acceptable. Good, bad. Holy, unholy. And we too have unspoken and sometimes spoken understandings of who is in and who is out based on the boundary markers that we create for our own contexts as churches. It's very common for Christians to divide the world between good and bad, 
making arbitrary standards, keeping evil out in order to promote the good that we believe is within. Standards about dress, standards about drink, standards about dating, all these different things, all these number of issues that typically the Bible would say is, is best guided by wisdom and discernment, we, we try to legislate as rules. But it's really fascinating how those who make these standards, these, whoever they are, whoever make these standards, these traditions of men, mysteriously wind up on the good side. Couple examples. This is the kind of movie that you can watch and be a true Christian, but these are the kind of movies you can't. Well, why? Well, because those are the kind of movies I watch, of course. Growing up as a kid, I thought there were two unpardonable sins blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and watching a rated R movie. <laughs> but why? Well, that's because these are the movies that we watch and don't watch. This is the appropriate amount of money to spend that's moderate and not greedy and self serving. This is how a true Christian spends their money. Well, how did you determine that? Well, that's how we spend our money, of course. This one's getting a little bit more relevant. 2020, a good Christian votes Republican. Or a true follower of Jesus votes Democrat. What you can wear, how you vote, issues of this, issues of that. See, throughout the centuries, we are constantly dividing the world between good and bad. We've probably even done that in this room today which in the long run benefits those who fall inside and isolates those who fall outside. But here's the issue, one that really Jesus is pressing on here. As one historian put it, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That line that we're looking for out there passes right through where it hurts. The source of the problem is not external. The source of the problem is internal. And throughout this account, Jesus keeps bringing the conversation back within. We want to talk about the conversation out there, and Jesus says, let's start inside. Which leads us to our second movement, defiled hearts. Now, one of the more common mantras of our day is be true to your heart. Follow your heart. And the idea is that the heart is the true source of good in a crazy world. That the most meaningful way to navigate all the chaos and, and all the pressures of this world is by following that inner compass that will lead you inevitably to good. But if you think about it, this mantra... Be true to your heart, follow your heart is actually just another expression of what we see present in the Pharisees. And this is how it's similar. This mantra essentially places the problem outside of ourselves and ignores the reality of what's within. That the problem's out there and the, and the true good is in here. The Pharisees were fixated on cleansing of hands. This is a form of what's called externalism, which is an obsession about external forms and rituals of worship. But what Jesus is showing them is that they're literally missing the heart of the matter. When the focus is simply on outward purity, the much deeper heart work that God intends to do is gonna be missed. Let me say that again. When our obsession is with the external, 
What God is showing us is that the deeper heart work that he intends to do is going to be neglected. It's going to be forgotten. Look with me at the words of Jesus, at the words of Jesus here in verse 20 through 23. And he said, what comes out of a person, this is, this is really where it stings, guys. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Did anyone's mom ever apply soap to their mouth? <laughs> the joy and privilege I had was being raised at a time where liquid soap was just become the thing, too. I'll take a bar over liquid soap any day. So here's the idea, right? That we'll, we'll, we'll teach a young boy or a girl to stop the, with the dirty talk through, through soap. Now, as a parent, I am all about creative discipline. Don't get me wrong here. <laughs> I'm always looking for a new way. But here's the idea. That what is being done on the outside will have the ability to transform within. And the problem is that true defilement isn't out here. It can't be washed off. It can't just simply be washed away by soap. It's, it's in here. Now, it's important to mention, do the external things that we do shape our hearts? Absolutely. The book that we're giving away this month is talking all about that. Don't get me wrong. What we do with our bodies, what we do in our practices, what we do in our rituals is inevitably touching and shaping our hearts. But here's the question. Do they have the power to purify and cleanse us from within? Do the things that we do out here have the ability to rid us of sin and to cleanse us? Of sin? And the answer is no. The source of this defilement, Jesus tells us, where all uncleanness, all issues of uncleanness come from, is our hearts. This is the true source. And therefore, this is the place that we need to focus. This is the place where we need to narrow in our focus in our own discipleship and the discipleship of others. Let me say it this way. The issue is not a dirty world that we need to stay away from. The issue is an unclean heart that God desires to deal with. There are a number of ways that the Bible describes sin and how it distorts our relationship with God, how it distorts our relationship with others, how it distorts our relationship uh, with ourselves. And one of the ways that sin is described is as impurity. Or, or the stain of sin. An example of this is when the prophet Isaiah catches a glimpse of the glory of God. We're told this in Isaiah 6. He responds and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst, midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is his declaration? I am unclean. In the presence of a holy, pure, undefiled God, that is where we realize that our sin is staining. And it is a defiling reality that denies us access to the presence of a holy God. In fact, listen to the question and answer of the psalmist in Psalm 24. 
Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who belongs in the presence of a holy God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. How are you doing with that one? I find it interesting that amidst all the descriptions of sin, this is the one that I think most people can associate with. Regardless of your religious affiliations, I don't think it takes temples or priests or sacrifices or any other distinctly religious practice to feel unclean. I think the social conscience of America in the 20th century was guilt. I think the social conscience of America in the 21st century is defilement, shame, uncleanness. Within my family, extended and immediate, I have a number of relatives that live with varying levels of OCD. And different tendencies that really manifest in controlling situations, whether it be cleanliness or organization or something to that effect. So I did a little bit of research to better understand some of these things that are going on. And what I found, interestingly, about OCD is that it can come on later in life. OCD-like symptoms can come on in adult life and typically based on a traumatic or a disrupting experience. Something can happen that brings about an inward feeling that brings about an outward expression of cleanliness. What I also found was that a psychologist named Stanley Rockman conducted a study that found those who expressed a sense of ongoing inward dirtiness were often those who turned to compulsive washing and cleanliness. And so the idea here is that external cleanness is a way to cope with the feelings of feeling defiled inside. And so maybe a couple of examples of how this manifests in their lives. Someone who has experienced their life going out of control, what did they do? They find the things that they can control. They go on cleaning rampages. They, maybe something bad happens in your life. So what do you do? You organize your closet. Something is in a me- your life is in a mess. What do you do? You make sure your desk is super clean. We even have religious terminology like purging. What am I doing right now? I'm purging. I'm cleansing. Perhaps someone's emotions are in conflict and in disorder, so they find things in the external of their lives to bring into order. This is a little insight into my my life. You will know that I'm dealing with stress and anxiety when every single week I show up with a new haircut. (laughs) So I've learned over the years how to cut my own hair, and what happens when I'm stressed? I find something that I can bring into order. When things are chaotic, what, what do I do? I turn to the simple little things that I can grab hold of, And know at the end of the day that I've done my little job of bringing order to this chaotic world. Someone may have a deep sense of shame or embarrassment about an element of their body. So what do they do? They dedicate their entire lives to being the most beautiful, healthy, well-put-together person. Or you have a deep sense of insecurity about the value of your life. So what do you do? You use social media media to curate a propped-up, cleaned-up, filtered version of your life for other people to see. They are all, in a sense, rituals of cleansing. They are all, in a sense, of ways that we are trying to clean the stain away. In one way or another, we experience feeling dirty inside, feeling a deep sense of shame over our actions of the past or maybe even our present involvements, and we're trying, desperately trying, to wash it away. 
There's a scene within Shakespeare's Macbeth. After Lady Macbeth helps to kill uh, King Duncan, she goes on this cleaning rampage where she's constantly trying to wash her hands and the, she comes to the doctor and the doctor sees her and she's with the, her gentlewoman. The doctor turns to the woman who's with Lady Macbeth and asks, what is she doing? And the woman responds, she's known to do this all the time. I've watched her do this up to 15 minutes. And you hear, you hear her in the background yelling out. Lady Macbeth says, out, damn, spot, out, I say. Trying, constantly trying to wash away the stain of her sin unsuccessfully. See, this is the essence of man-made religion. This is the essence of the elevation of the tradition of men. It's present in the traditions of the Pharisees, and it's present even in our day today. It's that desperate attempt to remove the stain of sin by practical means. We're trying, desperately trying, to make ourselves acceptable in the presence of a holy God. But here's the dilemma. And Jesus is presenting the dilemma. He doesn't explicitly go into the solution, but the whole of Scripture will, will give us the solution, and we'll get to that in, in just a moment. But Jesus is showing the, the dilemma that we face. And here's the dilemma. We can't. Can we cleanse and wash away the stain of sin? No. Listen to the words of Martin Luther. He said, the most damnable and damaging heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. What a damnable heresy that we can cleanse ourselves to the place where we are approved and accepted in the presence of a holy God. So the question is, why does Jesus seem so passionate and potentially even bent out of shape here? Why such a sharp response to the Pharisees? And I think it's because he understands the destructive and the divisive nature of this approach. And in his compassion, he understands the emotional anguish that this brings to people who are convinced that just a little more washing is going to do the trick. Who is here this morning, through the religious expressions, whatever it may be, saying the same thing that Lady Macbeth is saying, out, damn, spot, out. Just a little bit more washing, just a little bit more obedience, just a little bit more behavior modification, just a little bit more Christian stuff, and it will be enough. There's something important to note here in Mark, and it's this. Jesus affirms the reality of defilement. Jesus affirms the devastating effects of sin, that we are unclean before God, and therefore we are unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. His rebuke of the Pharisees is not over this matter. In fact, you're not going to find Jesus taking lightly issues of purity and sin. However, what Jesus disagrees with is how the issue is being resolved, how impurity is cleansed. And what we need to do today is what we need to do is we need to embrace two things. We need to embrace that we are far beyond simply making mistakes. We need to embrace that we are, we are, on, we are beyond simply having little areas of failure in our lives. We are defiled of heart. Jesus is not going to pull a punch on that one. And yet, the only hope is for a cure that cleanses within, true cleansing. 
And that hope is Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our final point, declared clean. See, unlike the gospel, the other gospel writers, Mark hardly ever adds any commentary. Mark is just like barreling through the story. Very, very few pauses. He's, he's not about sort of expanding on the details. But in this passage, he makes a small comment. And it's found in verses 18 and 19. First, the words of Jesus. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Nice little neat way to say that there. (laughs) Thus, so here's the commentary. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Okay, so this is the challenge for for preaching this, this sermon. This is a reference to Jewish food regulations, which I'm betting very, very few of us are living familiar with or into this. So there's way too much to say about this and way little time, but at least two things to mention about the whole Jewish food regulations. The first is this. He is saying that the outside-in cleansing doesn't work. Nothing that you try to do to introduce from the outside has the ability, has the ability in and of itself to transform your heart, okay? It's interesting that in the 21st century, clean eating has become a thing again. I don't think it's religious, but it is like a religion for some people. While it may help help your gut health, and uh, it may help your overall physical health, it does nothing to purify your heart. That's one of the points that Jesus is making here. Secondly, and I think this is the profound point for us today, Jesus has the authority to take what is considered unclean and declare it clean. And thus, declaring all foods clean. How? See, all the regulations about food and hands and cleansing and pots and copper and all that sort of thing that we see here, they're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is not saying, hey, you know all that like Old Testament stuff about rules, Leviticus and all that sort of stuff? Just ignore it. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, it's all pointing to me. Here Mark references food, but later on in Acts, the conversation about unclean food and clean foods is ultimately an illustration of something bigger, and it's an illustration of unclean people. For instance, in Acts, when right before Paul is about to go and preach the gospel to the Gentile world, those whom the Jewish community considered unclean and defiled, God gives him a vision of a bunch of ceremonially unclean animals coming down on a sheet from heaven, and God says, eat. And Peter's like, never. Nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. And I love God's response. God responds, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Now, friend, think about the implications of that statement. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. The point here is that a previously excluded people are now being included. And through God saying, through my son, the unclean are being declared clean. What this passage here in Mark is hinting at is the power of the gospel. 
that while there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to deal with that stain of sin, that there is, in fact, something that Jesus has done through his perfect life and through his atoning death. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as this great high priest who is holy, who is innocent, who is unblemished, undefiled, set apart from sinners, seated and exalted in the heavens, and yet in grace came in weakness and vulnerability and took on flesh. And at the cross, Jesus bore the stain of our sin and all of its defilement. The Bible tells us that he was crucified outside of the city in the place of the defilement in the most defiled manner, most most grotesque manner that you could ever imagine. Jesus takes upon himself our defilement in the garbage heap and defilement of society. The stain comes upon him so that the cleansing of God could come upon us. How can we be declared clean? And the gospel tells us because Jesus exchanged our defilement for his holiness. He takes upon himself the stain of our sin, and in grace, he extends his holiness, his purity. And this is an exchange that is to be received, not by washing our hands. I know that for some of us, we think, okay, I've got to earn this. I've got to make sure that my hands are super clean, that when I receive it, I am truly worthy. But what the gospel tells us, that this is a gift of free grace that is to be received by faith. By faith. Hebrews says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What this tells us is that the source of purity in our lives is not ultimately our behavior. The source of purity is not our abstinence. The source of purity is not a purity ring. The source of purity is nothing in and of ourselves. The source of purity is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. So what I want us to do in in, in the last just few moments is I want us to consider how we can apply this to our lives individually and corporately. This is a million implications, so I just want to scratch the surface. This is something that I hope that we will digest today, go home, be praying about, be considering in regards to our lives, our families, our community, and so on. Individually, the first thing I want us to to know is this, that, that we need to come under the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't think we talk about the blood of Christ enough. There are songs that the church has sung for hundreds of years about the blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And it seems that every time that we go and sing it, there's still just a little bit of cringe in me. What 
What is this language? But we need to remember that God has called us to come under the blood of Jesus Christ. Our home is under the fount of Christ's blood. That's where the Christian is called. How do we do this? So the Bible tells us that confession brings us under the blood of Christ. The Apostle John would write to the church, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this morning, I would venture to say that we all in some way or another feel that stain of sin. Whether it's the the shame over past sin or maybe it's even present involvements and entanglements right now. And we have two responses to that. We can conceal. We can cover up. Just keep burying it so that when it grows up, it just keeps growing up worse. Or the Bible tells us that we can bring it into the light. We can bring it under the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's the promise when we bring it in the blood of Jesus Christ. That he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not partial cleansing, not just, just a little bit, but all of it. Secondly, the second thing we need to consider is that you have been made holy to live holy. The gospel is not just good news of what we have been saved from, namely defilement. The gospel is good news about what we have been saved to and for, holiness. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Listen, including yourself including you. It's clear, I think it's clear, that we should avoid legalism. But I think it is less clear for us in the 21st century church that we are to avoid the other extreme, which is considered licentiousness. It's the thought that if we have grace and we have forgiveness from God, then that gives us life license to do whatever we want. I'm under the blood, I'm under grace, whatever. That what we do on the external, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our mind, what we do with our our money no longer matters because it's all about the heart and it's all been purified. That's another extreme that the Bible would tell us to avoid. Listen to the words of God through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, hallelujah, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and listen and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Obedience is not a contradiction to the gospel. The gospel enables us to walk in newness of life. We have been made holy to live holy. Amen. Amen. Lastly, corporately. There's a, a card in the seat back in front of you, and it's got a little picture on it, and it says 2019 vision or something along those lines. And there, those, those lay out the, the five things that we as a community have been praying through this year and really seeking, uh, really endeavoring to do by God's grace. And the first two things on that list are removing barriers to belonging and clarifying lines of distinction. And I think that this passage that we're looking at this morning has something to do with those two things. In fact, I think it has profound implications on it. What I want us to do is, what I want to challenge you to be doing is praying for your community. I hope you pray for your church. And what I'm asking you to do is pray for our church corporately that the Spirit would help us to 
identify the things that are in our midst, whether they're hidden or not so hidden, whether they're unspoken or spoken, that he would help us to identify and remove those things that exclude and isolate and drive people away. We have to be honest. There are things that we do, traditions of men that we've elevated to the place of doctrine that are keeping people out. God help us. So spirit, this is what we're praying. Spirit, help us to identify of those things, identify those things, repent of those things, and remove the barriers to belonging. Second thing, at the same time that God would enable us to be really clear about what the Bible calls us to be and how he calls us to live, that those lines of distinction would be really clear, not lines that divide, but lines that uphold. As Jesus came full of grace and truth, our prayer is that God would empower us to embody both grace and truth as a community. Grace and truth. That we would be inclusive in our welcome and at the same time exclusive in our commitments to holiness. I'm believing, I'm daring to believe for our community that God is going to allow us to experience both. I think we and other churches have floundered between the two. We think that if we're going to be inclusive, we need to lower the bar of holiness. Or if we're going to raise the bar of holiness, we need to be very exclusive about who we welcome. And Jesus embodies both. So let's refuse to compromise either one for the sake of the other. And by God's grace, endeavor to be both. Jesus, in his purity, moves towards the excluded. He moves towards the marginalized. And we need to pray that we as the cleansed and purified community would do so too. The cleansing, holy presence of Jesus is on the move in our community. Let's join him. Let's join him, amen? Father, thank you for this.